Welcome to Witchlit, a place to talk about the craft of writing and writing the craft. I'm your host, Victoria Rashke, author, publisher, witch, and nosy Scorpio. Witchlit is brought to you by Thousand Bolt Press, a family-owned independent publisher established to produce the books we want to see in the world. Titles including Changing Past by Yvonne Aborow, Pondering the Commonplace by Lane Fuller and Corey Thomas Hutchison, and my latest book, Verona Green, can be purchased directly from thousandvoltpress.com or wherever you buy books. Rachel Pollock authored 41 books, including two award-winning novels, Unquenchable Fire, winner of the Arthur C. Clarke Award, and Godmother Night, winner of the World Fantasy Award. She also wrote a series of books about tarot, 78 Degrees of Wisdom being the best known, a book of poetry, Fortune's Lover, and had translated with scholar David Vine, Sophocles, Oedipus, Tyrannus, Oedipus Rex, under the title Tyrant Oedipus. She designed and illustrated her own tarot deck, the Shining Tribe Tarot. With artist Robert Place, she created two more decks, the Burning Serpent Oracle and the Raziel Tarot. For 11 years, she taught at Goddard College's MFA writing program. Rachel lived with her wife and manager, Zoe Madoff, in New York's Hudson Valley. Pollock died from non-Hodgkin lymphoma on April 7th, 2023 at the age of 77. And we are going to talk about that award-winning book, Godmother Night. And from the Carcass Review, kind of a brief overview for folks who haven't read it. While she begins, while this book begins as a depiction of modern lesbian life, it grows inexorably into a magical exploration of the deepest roots of life and death. Pollock tells a story that shifts with remarkable ease between the world of mundanity and the world of fairy tale and folklore. Essentially, it falls into three large movements, which do not quite match the novel's internal divisions. In the first, we meet Laurie and Jake, two college women who fall in love, and after Laurie drops out of graduate school, set up housekeeping. They have several disturbing encounters with a mysterious woman called Mother Knight and her entourage of motorcycle girls. Jake eventually decides that she wants to become a mother. A friend finds an anonymous sperm donor, and in due course, Jake gives birth to a daughter, Kate. Shortly thereafter, Jake dies, and we learn that Mother Night is death incarnate. In the second section, we see Kate growing up. Lori has adopted her with Mother Night in the role of godmother. Kate is a bit of a misfit in school, but she moves easily in the ghostly world revealed to her by her godmother. Mother Night offers Kate, who is deeply affected by the suffering of others, a healing potion which she can save some of those whom conventional medicine cannot help, but only those whom Mother Knight tells her are not already doomed. In the third section, we see Kate grow up, grown up and working as a healer. When she begins to question Mother Knight's decisions, she has to face a difficult choice with the fate of her own lover in the balance. Throughout the narrative, Pollock finds graceful transitions between realistic portrayals of modern urban life in a fantastic landscape peopled with angry ghosts, lesbian biker Valkyries, and incarnations of supernatural powers. Tender and disturbing, down-to-earth and wildly inventive, this complex novel shows Pollock to be one of our best fantasists. And to talk about this novel, um, Charles Harrington is joining me again. Um, and I, since he's been on the show already, I'm going to let him introduce himself, and then we will jump into talking about Godmother Night. Charles. Oh, I'm so very thankful to be here. My name is Charles Harrington, and I like tarot. <laughs> I am a huge fan of Rachel Pollock. Um, specifically about me, I did author the 
uh, Terror of the Vampires, with, uh, which was illustrated by Craig Marr. And uh, I also recently, um, a new one that came out for me was the Oracle of the Inferno based on Dante's Inferno, which is a, you know, a great way if you want to start your day with a card with people on fire or being bitten by snakes. So, <laughs> A great card of the day deck. Absolutely. So I'm, awesome. I'm very excited about this book. Uh, real quick, quick question. Did you ever get to meet Rachel Pollock at any of the, uh, she used to go to a lot of pagan and events. Yeah, and I did not get to meet Rachel, which seems like a great loss because she seems like a remarkable person all around. Um, did you get to meet her? I did a couple of times and, and maybe some of those moments will come up in our, our conversation today, but she was a awesome. wild, wonderful lady. Yeah, I am um, just the outpouring um, when um, Neil Gaiman, everyone's can bingo now, um, posted about her going into hospice, like just that outpouring of people whose lives she had touched was kind of remarkable to watch. It was, it was sometimes, you know, you have those odd celebrity death mm -hmm. moments and sometimes there's, this was a rare moment where we were sort of alerted. We, I knew she'd been, she'd been suffering for a long time and like the tarot community was really great about sort of being there for her and stepping up and, um, and I'm sure other communities that she's a part of as well, uh, because she touched so many different people. Um, but, uh, it was hard to lose her. It was hard to read this book sometimes knowing that she was not with us anymore, but then mm -hmm. also, uh, I've had some kind of wacky moments since then of kind of feeling like like she's with us still having yeah. like state like moments so anyway yeah um so being that you are a tarot card deck creator and a tarot reader um and the brief for these episodes is always you know like a, a classic work of which lit but you know one of the Precepts for people who listen, the author has to be dead. It has to be someone I couldn't get to come on the show, basically. Um, so you chose one of Rachel's fiction novels rather than 78 Degrees of Wisdom or one of her other tarot books. So why why did you want to read the fiction? Why did you want to oh, talk that, about that? That's a great question. Um, I think that tarot people, uh, 78 Degrees of Wisdom is sort of a sacred text in the world of tarot. It's sort of up there with, I'd say, um, Tarot for Yourself by Mary Greer, alive, great, wonderful, reach out to her. Mm -hmm. And uh, a few other sort of iconic tarot texts. So 70 Degrees of Wisdom, I think people read and they, they tend to read it reverently. And then there's another uh, book I'd love to talk about later that I think is her tarot magnum opus. But I think it really helps to read some of her other types of books out there. Um, I really love her fiction. She has a wonderful series about Jack Shade, which is a uh, he's a sort of a shaman detective. <laughs> um and it's a it's a cool sort of urban fantasy book, but I'd never read Mother Night before. Um, and I'd heard about it. I knew it was an award winner. I knew it kind of put her on the map in the fantasy in sorry yeah in the science fiction and fantasy community in many ways. So I wanted to check that out. And I think that understanding her fiction or reading her fiction helps clue us into how she weaves mythical elements into her tarot work into into her everything yeah yeah and i i will say like i had not read this book and i had not read any of rachel's other fiction so this was like my first well i take that back i hadn't read but i had watched doom patrol <laughs> which, <up> there. <laughs> yeah. so i in a lot of the television show is based on her run of the the comic so like 
you know, I guess that was my exposure to like her fiction writing or her storytelling. Um, but this really is like a mythic book. Like it is really, um, I liked the Carcass review, although I always find their reviews kind of weird. Um, but, you know, the first it starts out as like a love, a lesbian love story and then goes into this whole other thing. But it doesn't really start just as that like Mother Night is there from chapter one, almost page one. It even starts with um, doesn't say like this is New York. I, I, OK, I was trying to figure mm-hmm. out where it takes place, but yeah, I think it's New York. Yeah. It might be New York, but it takes place on a city shaped like a turtle or something like that. And yeah. it's sort of, she does little things to set it outside of time. And then there's a couple major fairy tales that show up. The, the, probably the most prominent one is uh, Godfather Death, which mm-hmm. I'd heard before. It's a Grimm's Brothers fairy tale. But I was trying, I, when I was trying, I, I didn't make the connection right away mm-hmm. um, to it. Thankfully, I would have spoiled the, the end of the book. But uh, <laughs> uh, in some ways. But uh, it is sort of, what am I going with this? Uh, it is, okay, here, I have a question I have for you. Yeah. Um, sometimes people talk about fantasy and then they talk about magical realism. I'm making mm-hmm. quoting figures. And it sometimes seems like there's, uh, sometimes the, the distinction seems to be one is highbrow and one is one is not. But I felt like in some ways this book sort of del- sort of dove into territory of like magical realism as opposed to just sort of regular fantasy. I don't know. What do you think about that distinction? Yeah. I mean, I thought about that too, because there is such a, like, this is just the world, right? Aspect to it. Like in magical mm-hmm. realism, like the, the magic, the uncanny, all that stuff happens with no explanation is just accepted as part mm-hmm. of the world. And I agree with you. I think sometimes fantasy and magical realism it's like literature and genre fiction like it, mm-hmm. it, it that's really the distinction which i think is kind of arbitrary in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and obviously you know the science fiction and fantasy world thought this was an award-winning book which i would yes. agree with i mean it's mm-hmm. unique and the storytelling is unique um but yeah i mean i think it is it does have a lot of the same kind of aspects to me that what is generally considered magical realism has the way it's written. Um, And I think also to me, magical realism often has a more everyday stake. Like this is human life rather than these larger than life things that fantasy can have. Um, And so the story, the stakes are high for the individual people, but the stakes are not like the world, you know, all of human life in a way. A I mean, they are, but they're not. Yeah. yeah. That's a useful distinction. Um, uh, and I hadn't thought of it that way before, but uh, yeah, it's because I, sometimes I think maybe like a, a regular fantasy book, all of the people know they live in a fantasy world with magic mm-hmm. and people have to like, Oh, you have to learn this spell by finding these ingredients. And like, that's not how it works in, mm-hmm. um, in this world. And it's sort of interesting. It sort of blends goddess movement era paganism. I'm sorry. As if we're not in the goddess movement era. Sort of, okay. <laughs> what I hey, thought of... Mid-90s goddess mid-90s movement era. <laughs> goddess movement. Yeah. Um, goddess, also feminist, you know, anthropology is a big part of this. And feminist academia is a huge part of this book, mm-hmm. which Rachel was very familiar with. And like mm-hmm. also queer liberation is a huge part of the book. And so those are all very real focuses with very real versions of them. And then, and then you just meet a 
strange person or you walk into a forest and there's different weird beings. And I was interesting to me how often um, sometimes characters were unsettled by the magical, mm-hmm. but um, there wasn't ever like disbelief of it. I think a quick, very quickly, the main character uh, of the first part, Jake, realizes that like this woman, this like sort of amazing, like sort of like sort of like a 40s movie star type charisma, uh, mm-hmm. vampy kind of character shows up and she quickly realizes that when she when this woman shows up people die and that she's sort of not what she seems and i thought that was interesting i thought in a a urban fantasy like she would have fought against that idea Mm -hmm. yeah like the writing reminded me a lot of um charles Mm delint like it's very much that kind of 90s urban fantasy i guess you always think of charles delint is kind of like everybody kind of thinks about as like the originator. I don't think really think he was. I mean, obviously a lot of people were working on that, but this is clearly in that school of mm-hmm. of urban fantasy kind of writing. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, it's like that there are a lot of conversations that happen that are not like the plot conversations that I really enjoy. Like you said, like the queer liberation stuff, the the lesbian movement or lesbian group on campus where the story starts. And I'm thinking like, it also feels like that first part is set like probably in the seventies or yeah. 80 or early eighties to me. Like that was kind of the, my guess as to when it was set. There's a is great it, line in there about that. I'm sorry. You're speaking. Oh, no, no, no. I like, you're right. Like it's set kind of out of time. So it's kind of hard to place. And there was a great line where it's, that I said, on like, these days, people didn't know what to think about two women in love together. It, they used to know what to think, which was that it was, dis- and I, this is me paraphrasing mm-hmm. a little bit, like they used to know what to think that it was disgusting but and unacceptable. But these days, people don't know what to think, which was kind of like, yeah, like I guess anywhere from the 80s to the 90s of yeah. like people wanting, knowing this is around and wanting to be compassionate, but not not full acceptance. There's a mm-hmm. um, the great lesbian there there's a homecoming dance that's based around a toad which is very strange it's like a strange collegiate holiday about finding a toad and mm-hmm. which is very symbolic um and then uh <laughs> a dance two women two women dance together at a college and there's a moment of like oh i don't know about that <laughs> but yeah um, then also there's there's the great so there's three main human characters and then there's the great mother knight and her 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 uh, i had not thought of them as valkyries they are biker valkyries you're 100 what did you think maybe if we could talk about mother knight herself what did you think of mother knight yeah like i i it's funny because not having read this book like i also have written death as a woman a character mm. as a character in my books and um not that i thought that it was an original thought death shows up as a woman a lot but um so there was that like immediate like oh like that recognition of her as death as a woman like i think for me death as a character as a woman has always made more sense and i don't know if that's because of my you know i you know am identify as a woman or you know live my life that way and it always made sense to me in that kind of cycle of birth and death for for death being a woman but the thing that I love about Rachel's version of death in this book is that death is also constrained. Mm-hmm, death, has, mm-hmm. death has rules. Death yes. is not arbitrary. 
Yeah. And she's like a midwife to death. Yeah, exactly. She, they're, you know, there are decisions made by characters that alter other people's lives. I think you can't just decide this person lives and that doesn't alter somebody else. And I love the scene close to the end of the book where death takes Kate out of the hotel where they are into the parking lot and it's filled with candles and all of the candles represent a life. And some of them are big, tall pillar candles. And some of them are tiny birthday candles that are sputtering out and candles that have melted into their own puddles. And, you know, and she's like, well, if you don't want me to blow that candle out, then choose another one. And then she tells her the story of that candle. And I, I can blow this one out instead of the one that you don't want me to blow out, but this poet will never finish this work. You know, like which wasn't that poet her biological father? I wondered about that, but I wasn't sure because he was working on a poem about life or like the meaning of life mm -hmm. when she's conceived. He still hasn't finished it <laughs> 30 years later. I don't know. Yeah. I thought that was um, uh, interesting. But uh, yeah, a, a death death is has rules and it, and it and it it can't just make everything happy. And there's there's sad moments around that when I'm um, mm -hmm. Jake. I think it's bold when a, a writer kills one of the main characters, sort of in, 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 in for me, it's a very Joss Whedon-y kind of thing to do, but uh, yeah. kills Jake like at a halfway mark in the book. Mm -hmm. And you just sort of like very attached to her. Um, and yeah. Yeah, I did. Um, I was reading it a lot at night before I went to sleep in the week before Christmas, which might, mm -hmm. folks, this will come out like, you know, for in bulk Candlemas. So, but I was reading it the week before Christmas, which is probably not the best week to read a really sad book. Yeah. <laughs> but, but at that point, I just kind of closed the book and I was like, damn it, Rachel. <laughs> yeah, why? Yeah. yeah God, Godmother Night, she shows up whenever she shows up. It's always there's a focus on how like fabulous and weird her outfits mm -hmm. are. She's wearing yes. some kind of strange hat. And she like has this that almost like tattered Amelian velvet dress. And yeah. Yes. And I, I liked that aspect of her. And it was sort of. um. Uh, there were like, like I mentioned earlier, she seems like a, a '40s movie star. She's mm -hmm. always like at ease with the human characters, which maybe you would be if you're deaf. And uh, pardon me, um, she is just very cool in mm -hmm. in a way that is very attractive, and it, it made me like you know want the character spend more time with her. But then there's sort of a realization that it's not safe to be around her and that when that, when that shows up. And also I like, I think another part of uh, magical realism is how much is not explained. Mm -hmm. the, the, at some point we were pretty sure that all of these short red haired lesbian bikers must be some sort of spiritual being or former, former human beings. And it's just never explained. And nope. that's, you know, there's a bunch of things that are never explained because it leaves the weird atmosphere to not explain mm -hmm. the rules. And it, and it also, it, I don't know, it lets us sort of imagine what are mother night's limitations. Yeah. Like how much, how much can she control and how much can she not control? And I think the other thing about her, and I've kind of lost my train of thought a little bit, but, that, um, you know, we, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm kind of like, do I want to spoil? But I'm also like, this is a 30 year old book. Yeah. You know, so if you don't want spoilers, stop now, go read the book and then come back. Um, <laughs> but that, that like theme of her being a redhead with these like, you know, biker chick, they kind of remind me of the women from Greece. 
in a way. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Like I, they I had these that. pink motorcycle satin motorcycle jackets. Yeah. And like how protected Kate is when she's with them, which is weird to think of this child being protected in a bubble of death, right? Which is yes. that. And then there's a sequence when Kate is still a child when the dead kind of try to have the revenge and have like this market where they're selling the garbage of their lives. Yes, that was creepy as heck. And they're so mad at Mother Night for having the pet living mm-hmm. person or non-dead as they call them. Yeah. Kate. And I feel like uh, people who are mediums or have a feel like they have a medium gift or a strong medium gift. Um, I don't know how that works. Uh, but I feel like they, they do feel like they don't exist what i hear from them is that they don't feel like they completely exist in either world with the living and the dead mm-hmm. um so that 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 sort of kate is sort of uh laurie and jake are kind of every women if they were every lesbian um <laughs> characters they're just sort of <clears throat> normal people you know um with normal hopes and fears and dreams and powers whereas kate has this other life where her godmother shows up and takes her in a hot air balloon or takes her to watch stars die um mm-hmm. There's a beautiful scene because as, as much as Mother Night is a goddess of death, she's also very intimately connected with life. And there's that scene where she's showing Kate how stars die. And sometimes, sometimes their dust goes, reaches other worlds and forms life. Mm-hmm. And sort of, I think that more cosmic view, more galactic view of life and death, as opposed to the very personal experience that the characters are having was, was really interesting. Yeah. Well, I think I, to me, that scene also like Mother Night becomes death, not just in this kind of earthly allegorical way, but like as this cosmic force mm-hmm. too. You see her in this bigger, like the de- if she's in charge of the death of stars, mm-hmm. as well as the death of people and a bird and all of these things, then it's not just that. I, I, there is like it's funny when you said that Jake and Lori are every lesbians because I one of the things about this book that I thought about like in context of of especially queer literature in the 90s we were still kind of in that tragic gaze period of of lit and media around queer people you know like they either for the tragic death they never got their happy ending you know but and this mm-hmm. book is not a happy ending for yeah. any of the characters, really. I mean, you kind of don't know what's going to happen with Lori, but she's lost the love of her life and her child at the end of the book. Yeah. So. yeah. Sorry if you didn't have it ready yet. Yeah, <laughs> but, no, I said yeah, spoilers. Spoilers. Yeah, spoilers. spoilers. Um, it's a book about death. But it, you know, yeah. people die. It so. is. Like, she does take everything from Lori. And it's sort of, you know, sorry about that. But uh, I, I thought that okay, the decision to kill Kate Obviously, if it's based on, since it's based on, um, excuse me, um, the, the fairy tale Godfather death, they did, she didn't, Rachel didn't do the Disney thing and change that and make it all sweet at the end. Uh, Kate, short, beautiful life where she affected a lot of people. And, and Lori is left with no one other than, you know, the, she has friends around her, but. Louise. Um, yeah. <laughs> He's probably Louise. my favorite Louise. side character in the book. Yes, I love Louise. Throughout. She's like the. Right, like, yeah, sidekick lesbian friend who's like, come on, come to the party. Why don't you hang out with my group of mm-hmm. women who love? I okay, I did love some of the political things. Like, most of the time throughout the book, they're not lesbians; they're women loving women. Mm-hmm. 
was absolutely a conversation in the 90s, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what yes. we call ourselves. Why are we called after a island none of us have lived on? You know, yeah. Like yeah. that whole conversation. Yeah. I know okay, the academia, I'm sorry, I'm jumping everywhere, but the academia parts of the book were interesting and they, they have kind of an interesting culmination in that, that there's this um, Lori, um, of course, is pursuing a degree in like women's studies and she's uh, going to this college of the women's studies program that seems itself as different, but also has its own academic feminist hangups. And um, she's, there's great little moments in there where like, they're all sort of worshiping at the altar of Maria Gambutis and like goddess archeology span and everything wide as a womb kind of, kind mm-hmm. of uh, beliefs. But it sort of shows that Lori really has trouble with some of that. And some of like the, the, the goddess, um, uh, the goddess, I don't know, uh, not her, sorry, no. goddess movement, you know, I don't know, big goddess, big G goddess, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> things. And also there's a great, I'm everywhere. Actually, just let's talk about academia for a second, the way academia mm-hmm. and then how it sort of culminates with the Rumpelstiltskin bit. Yeah. Um, where she realizes it's not for her in a, in a great moment. Like, okay, I, I was, I was like Lori, Lori has to write like three term papers and she has like two weeks to do it. And she waits till like the very end, the last date has nothing. And then Rumpelstiltskin, like Mother Night, you don't know it's her, but you kind of suspect, shows up, writes them all in one night for her, uh, for a price yet to be determined. And Lori decides not to turn them in because this isn't for her. What did you, were you yelling? I was yelling <laughs> when that scene happened. Yeah. I mean, again, uh, it was like another one of those fairy tales that shows up, right? And then, but also, like, because I was in a women's studies program in the 90s, like, it hit a little hard. Wow. Really? Tell me more about that. So I think what the, there's a scene where she's talking about where she turns in this paper and her professor kind of gives her shit about her lesbian fantasy world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and that, you know, this is a, a professor who is a women's studies professor who's telling her no. Yeah. You know, in this in this way that felt unfair, like from Lori's point of view, and I think probably felt unfair from my point of view too. That yeah. it was always it's kind of like that. Yes, these women's studies programs existed in the '90s, and universities allowed them to happen, but there was still this pushback of, can you really look at these things that we don't want you to look at from a woman's point of view. And it, it made me think of this funny thing. And I, I've never said this on a podcast. I'm not going to name names, but people who know me will know who I'm talking about. But um, when I went to defend my undergraduate thesis, two of the people on my panel got in an argument about whether or not I was a feminist poet. And that was about half of my feet. That was about half of my defense time was me not talking and them arguing about what it meant to be a feminist poet. Oh, wow. That's incredible. Yeah. So that whole that whole part of her being in graduate school like hit really hard. Well, it's, <laughs> so it's like, it's yeah. Yeah. Also, it was interesting that like there's goddess religion happening in the book. Mm-hmm. And in the book's world, in the worldview of the book, that seems to be mostly about psychological and self-help and connecting self to purpose mm-hmm. and um missing and it's not directly connected to like mother night and actual goddess figure there's a there's a great line in there about they, they women's spiritual studies professor would take them to 
perform rituals at the lake to protect it, but human didn't seem to do much good. Humanity keeps pouring poison into it like it's uh, cursed mm-hmm. uh, to do so. And it was just sort of like, that was interesting, but also there's a scene where um, Jake has made a terrible decision. She sort of enlisted the help of the Valkyries to uh, cause harm. And she mm-hmm. feels really, really messed up about it. And um, she meets with Lori and, and, and she's like, I need your help. I need, what we need to do a ritual. And Lori says, do you need to do a goddess ritual? And she says, no, 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 not, not that. So we need something more real. And I was like, oh, where's this going? And Jake creates a ritual that with Lori in that moment where they're working through some stuff and working through uh, objects and I think some artwork that, mm-hmm. that, Laura, that Jake has created. And that was a very Rachel Pollock style ritual. Like Rachel Pollock was kind of really into getting like very intuitive and wild with it and like would perform tarot readings by laying the cards on someone's prone body on the floor, living body <laughs> on the floor to uh, to connect them to and everyone else in the space mm-hmm. to this magic. It was very Rachel Pollock, I thought. Yeah. No, I liked that. And I, the thing I think is interesting, especially kind of like in that encapsulation of like, you know, goddess movement worship, however you want to talk about that in that particular era. And then also kind of the academia and the women's studies aspect, because one of the things that she does, which I think is brilliant, is there are men who are definitely villains in the story. Who yes. gets her come up and the red shoes show up. The red shoes yeah. yes. fairy tale shows up. And then there's Mark, the guy who owns the bookstore, who's like this kind of Buddhist sage guy who is the person who finds Kate's, you know, father mm-hmm. and and has these words of wisdom and kind of is mystical in his own way, but in this totally other way. Yes. Yeah, he's not a, oh, I'm a practitioner of these arts and an initiate. Mm-hmm. He's just a wise dude who's read a lot and knows to, how to listen is one of the things mm-hmm. that they, they figure out with him. <clears throat> um, I will say it's just wild. Um, one of the moments where I was like, okay, this is a fantasy, but also of its t- of, of the 90s is that um, Lori is a manager at a bookstore and can support a wife and child. On in New York. Page. Yeah, in New York. <laughs> Okay, you had me at the, you had me there. Goddess, goddesses of death showing up at your at your dance. Like, I understand whatever. That's the, fine. But the that's, economics of it all. Yeah, yeah. But but, a, a different kind of character. Yeah, and I mean, I guess the other like kind of prominent male character in the book is then um, the artist at the yeah. end. Yes. So. What do you want? I, do you want to talk about? Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, like that whole scene. Like the whole arc with her going to this artist's deathbed, Kate going to this artist's deathbed. Um, I feel like this might be circular for people who haven't read the book, but um, that's when Kate kind of makes the decision that changes, that sets the rest of the book in motion, right? That's mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. the pivotal scene. But that his artwork is, you know, is really affecting to Kate. But as a person, he's kind of an asshole. Yeah. Like he's an yeah. asshole to women. He's an asshole to the guy who works for him. He's an asshole to his daughter that Kate falls in love with. You yeah. know, he's just not a great guy. And yet she makes this decision that impacts everything about her life from that point to the end of it, which is not I very long. That. Yeah. It wasn't, she wasn't saving like a young woman mm-hmm. who, you know, with a future. 
Um, I thought it was interesting that so Kate's whole shtick at the end, the uh, the daughter of the two ladies who's been chaperoned at this point through her whole life by Mother Night has become sort of like a death guru, right? Mm-hmm. And um, travels to centers, and the center that she's she's speaking at at the end is uh, very much seems to be inspired by Omega Institute, where mm-hmm. Rachel Pollack, when she was alive, uh, taught classes on tarot and other subjects. Um, but uh, she's her whole thing is about acceptance of death and the beauty of death, even in the real, the real confronting the real ugliness of death. And in her presentation has some very shocking imagery that I don't think I would want to attend one of her programs. Um, but so she's all about this this acceptance of death. But then she's in a in a moment where she gets arrogant. I think that's like the hero's mm-hmm. journey moment is that her yeah. arrogance uh, she can thwart death and really impress everyone and especially impress the lady in the room you know which was fun and uh (laughs) and yeah and it was having it be him having him be such like a a a boor (laughs) is that a Um, boorish person or whatever is was interesting because it made it all about it was kate's decision to do this for herself um and then it would add to your point it it, from that point on she's no longer comfortable with death completely Mm -hmm. um and um is uh and at the end it tries to avert fate mm-hmm. because she's already messed it up like her mm-hmm. decision switches fate i guess yeah. i don't know how like it I, it does make me think of oh, there's so many stories based on the idea that if you save one life then another has to go in that place yeah. right yeah and that's yeah. kind of what this is you know like because she saved the artist's life then another life has to be taken and it's one that Kate really doesn't want to be taken. Yeah. yeah. Um, I thought that was interesting because it wasn't, um, I think in the original fairy tale, when the doctor the male doctor who has been had death as his godfather, um, does makes this, makes that uh, action. It's sort of seen as his arrogance. Death is punishing him. Whereas mm-hmm. in this, it's just the laws of death and death. Mother Night herself is like, I told you not to do it, not because not because of me or my rules, but because or sorry, my, what I want, but because of you. I was worried about like doing that armed you, mm-hmm. you know, kind of thing. I thought that was a really interesting choice and allowed us to still love Mother Night yeah. at the end yeah. from a distance. Yeah, um, it doesn't make her the villain in the story at all. Yeah, yeah. The one thread through the story, and I thought I've thought about this a lot since I finished the book. It's been one of those things that pops into my brain every time I think about it. But like before Jake gets pregnant with Kate, she has this experience, this very negative experience with Lori's dad Mm -hmm, and winds up kind of getting lost in the woods and ill and finds this child with these shiny bones that she wants her to help her bury. And then Kate encounters that child later Yes. after she digs up the bones and then the child shows up again at the end. And Lori sees her, but doesn't know who she is. Who was that kid? Who was the kid? I mean, who's that kid? Yeah. <laughs> what is that? I mean, to me, I was like, Rachel doesn't ex- expand on who that is or what that is supposed to represent. But it's clear it's important because all three of the characters also experience this. And part of me wondered, okay, so is. Because the the child has the tragic story and is being pursued by this wraith. I don't know. Something that Mother Night dispatches. 
but says they'll yeah. be back. Yeah. And the child, you know, is blonde and fair haired and glowy. And, and I'm like, is the child life? Is this the counterpart to mother night? Like, I don't know. And Rachel doesn't tell us. And I think you kind of leave the novel going, maybe, does that mean that Lori's ending might be happy after all? Cause she walks off with this child or. There's a great moment in that. So in that first fever dream kind of moment, which actually kind of almost is a fever dream because mm-hmm. Jake is harmed and bleeding and she's, I don't know. I, as I was listening to the audiobook, I listened to it again because I um, was like, did I not, did I miss something? Did I not understand this scene? And it is just sort of wild. It had kind of like a, it reminded me of like um, the night circus kind of thing, <laughs> like where sometimes a scene is more about the atmosphere. But there's a great moment in there where she buries, she helps the child and Mother Knight tells her, or tells her, um, because you did that, it will help you more than you know, you know, or whatever, however she, she phrases it. Like, I, I wondered if, was the golden, no, the golden child can't be Kate because Kate, well, I kind of, I don't know, I guess I wondered if it was, if it was Kate because she shows up again when Lori is really struggling with the idea of having a child. She doesn't want a kid. And it was also tied to the um, the rock. There's a magic rock that someone just finds, and it kind of has this image on it that looks like a boatman. <laughs> imagine a rock. I think of like the ferryman. That's kind of yeah. what I imagine yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, the Charon. Yeah, and mm-hmm. which Rachel Pollock could look at a rock and see that, and she's got that kind of uh, <laughs> scope. But, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I wondered if it was Kate. Um, but does Kate meet the little golden child? Yeah, at the end. Oh, she does. Yeah. So I can't pick yeah. her own. What is? So, yeah, it is. And I think, like, honestly, I don't know. I, I'm i not trying like, uh, I don't need everything to be pat and all the rules to make sense. Mm-hmm. My better half is really into, like, hard magic systems mm-hmm. in fiction and wants to know, you know, all the care, it all to make sense and operate the right way. And it, it, and those are, like, beautiful, clever puzzles sometimes to me. And in this one, just sort of weird atmospheric things happen. Mm-hmm. And I was down for it. Yeah, no, I like that space to have the reader bring like their own experience to it and like their own knowledge of these stories and and who is this person and what does this mean? And mm-hmm. yeah, I, and I like that there's not really a bow at the end either. Right, right. You know? Yeah. Like we don't even really know how Kate dies. We don't know how Kate dies. And we also don't know, um, like I was wondering, is Kate going to be a Valkyrie now? Is she one of the girls? Mm-hmm. But she doesn't seem to be. Yeah. Uh, there was, oh, speaking of Kate's death and Laurie at the end, there's a throwaway line earlier in the novel about the living used to listen to the dead. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And at the end, Laurie turns into the, tunes into this radio station and she hears Jake's voice and then mm-hmm. she hears Kate and realizes they're talking. Yeah. And I was like, there that was so lovely and such a great, um, I think this, you know, whatever your belief system is, this idea that somehow the dead are reunited, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I hope so. <laughs> I'm yeah. really, really banking on there being an after death. Uh, but yeah, that that um, that she never. There's a beautiful thing through line, like one of the more human through lines through the book is um, through the second half of the book is Laurie would always say to Kate, "Oh, well, your mother, your mother," and then Kate would say, "You're my mother," mm-hmm. and like Laurie never really felt that way yeah um and preserves 
the chair that she finds Jake dead in and, mm-hmm. and, and preserves sort of a shrine in, in her life to Jake and isn't dating, which absolutely makes sense. But there's just this sort of beautiful, I, I thought it was lovely that Kate, Lori's mom, mm-hmm. like, well, I'm happy the best that she can. She doesn't have a relationship with Jake at all um, until the very end. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I thought that was one of the more human moments, especially probably for, like, oh, there's a bunch in there about lesbian rights and mm-hmm. rights to children and adoption rights that I thought was kind of fascinating. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, she handles like, there's so much going on in this novel. There's so many comments on things like the difference between Jake's parents and how they deal with her coming out and having a girlfriend and, and then kind of embrace Lori and Kate after Jake dies. And then there's Kate's, I mean, there's Lori's family who everybody loves, who turns out, they're kind of horrible people. Yeah. And they're missing from the rest of the book. Um, but yeah, it's, there's just so many layers to the book and I think so many ways to read it. And after I finished it, I started reading 78 Degrees of Wisdom again because I had it yeah. on the shelf. Yeah. And I was like, okay, so I want to read this with like a fresh eyes from the thing. Yes. And you get it from chapter one. Like it changes the way you read the book. You were absolutely right. It is, um, I guess like some people read 78 Degrees of Wisdom and I think the first time I read it, I think I made the mistake of thinking that like Rachel's explaining what the cards mean and she's more explaining how to think about expansively about the cards, meaning mm-hmm. like she gets into, she'll like talking about like, the fool and she'll talk about the numerology and the Hebrew letter and all the sort of the correspondences that you're used to. And then just she'll get into like the Joker from Batman or mm-hmm. cool characters in different myths. And it's not that she's trying to have you memorize this or like that. That's the meaning. If you're asking, like, am I going to get this job? But it's just getting you to think expansively about that. And um, so if anyone hasn't read it, um, 70 Degrees of Wisdom is wonderful. Um, I, I guess like some people I've seen some reactions recently. It was recently uh, re-released in the third edition. And I found, I found some people were asking like, well, this is very dated. And I don't know. Any, I think anything, I don't know. I don't go there. Uh, but her second book uh, that I really, really think every tarot reader should check out is um, also just re- been re-released. I think it was actually, it was re-released after her passing. And it is um, a walk through the forest of souls which combines uh, the, the original title was The Forest of Souls and um, some other material written after it. And it to me is her magnum opus for tarot readers because it is the book on how to do wisdom reading. Just really briefly, what, she, what wisdom reading is for Rachel Pollock was to do sort of more philosophical questions where you ask, what is the soul? And what is, what is the tarot? And how, you know, how... Yeah, you know, there's a there's a reading in the book, uh, which is the reading that God used to create the universe. And the intention is not that these are literal readings. Mm. And the intention also isn't that they're just a waste of time, but they're like kind of sacred readings to do. And I find them very helpful. And I find that um, I love I love doing predictive readings for someone about how to solve a problem. And that's my style. And that if the Tarot of Vampires guidebook, it's very much about how to use tarot in that way. But Rachel Pollack's sort of expansive view of just, you know, asking questions like, how does this particular Bible story explain this sequence of the tarot is uh, a way to get you think. And the 
again, you're not meant to memorize it. You're meant to like take that with, with on the road with you. And like, how do I think about my myths and how did, how did they show up in the, in the tarot and how can I mm-hmm. use that? Does that, that make sense? No, it totally makes sense. Cause I think that's one of the thing, like the kind of the thread from Godmother Night into the other stuff is that Rachel calls to these archetypes, but then kind of turns them on their head a little bit or makes them her own. Like in the fiction, like, yes, there are these archetypes and yes, she brings in these very well-known Rumpelstiltskin, you know, Godfather Knight, the red shoes, like all these things show up as part of the, as part of these people's lives, but not in the way you expect. And I think- I yeah. mean, like in 78 Degrees of Wisdom, and I have not read uh, A Walk. Through the Forest yeah, of Souls. Yeah, I'm, I'm, is now on my list. Uh, is that I see that in how she talks about, the, especially the Major Arcana in 78 Degrees of Wisdom, is these ideas that you don't have to know. You don't have to memorize all these things. But to know kind of what these archetypes are based on gives you space to pull in your own experience of those in your own life. And I think that's where that pop culture stuff and her experience writing for comics and like all of that kind of just threads together in this way that you're like, yeah. And to me, like the most interesting thing about tarot as a writer is every time you look at the card, you're going to see something different because your context and looking at it has changed. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's just so expansive in that way. And without ever like being worried about the wrong answer, um, which is helpful, especially if you're like me and really focused on right and wrong answers. Um, I have two funny little stories that I think tie into this about Rachel. Um, mm-hmm. I was to a Pentheacon, which is an amazing pagan conference in California. And one year Rachel was, there's things that would happen only to Rachel. And, um, she was teaching a class about finding the gods in the tarot and looking at the major arcana of the tarot and, uh, you know, connecting gods. And she's talking about the empress and um, she's talking about the goddess being Shekinah, who is the feminine. I mean, uh, my version is that she, you know, the feminine form of God in the Hebrew um, faith and uh God's feminine self. And she's talking, she's talking, and she looks down, she stops, and she looks at this woman and she's like, Excuse me, my dear. Um, does your name tag say your name is Shakina? <laughs> and the woman said, Yes. And she's like, Well, good. I'm so glad you could be here for this. Here is your car. And she talks to her. And it was a wild moment. That was a simple one. But another one um, where I got to see Rachel in action doing this, where it's not just, this isn't just sort of like philosophical falderall to make yourself feel interesting or, or, or vaunted. She kind of would live it. And we were in a, a Tuesday giving a presentation um, on a tarot spread created on based on the poem To Walk in Beauty by an indigenous author whose name escapes me at this moment. But she had this reading, she kind of presents it, How to, to Walk in Beauty. And she asked the room, is there any one here who has a question that we can use, we can explore with this spread? And this woman immediately, yes, I do. She goes up and, you know, we kind of think like, so, you know, Rachel's like, so what's your question? And it was, well, I recently was in a ritual and I came into contact with the diva of plastic, meaning D-E-V-A, the nature spirit of plastic. And they're very upset because humans think the plastic is bad and plastic is actually wonderful. And I think everyone in the room is like paralyzed. Like, 
what what is your question what's going on and rachel was like okay that's the question gave of plastic and gives this amazing uses the spread to explore this idea of a godlike being of plastic of human created and all of it and 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 the, the go it's a, it was a directional poem which is based on the indigenous mm-hmm. ideas about the directions and goes through all of it and i was just like that would what banana and then at the uh, cocktail party that night at one of the rooms i was approached her and talked about her and i was like that was um an interesting class that the, I, I that was an interesting reading and, and rachel just said and that was wild wasn't it <laughs> like <laughs> it was wild for her too that like she met a representative of the deva of plastic but she wasn't thrown by that at all like it wasn't like a that's an odd question she just it made sense to her that this was the, the question and she was the only person i feel like, like on earth at that moment who could take that reading and and run with it so that was yeah. a, that was a fun moment with rachel pollock yeah oh thank you for sharing that that's lovely um yeah i think for me like one of the things thinking about rachel in the last few days well honestly since her death is like how much she's influenced like modern occultism through tarot and all these other things and writing like and writers in like the urban fantasy you know, sci-fi, however you want to look at it, you know, I always think those labels are kind of somewhat mutable, but um, I was just thinking like all of the threads from Rachel's work into all of these other things. And um, I I said at the top, you know, we mentioned Neil Gaiman talking about, you know, posting about her going into hospice. And that was kind of when people knew that it was close to the end and um, uh, how much he's talked about how influenced by her work he is and how like 78 degrees of wisdom is one of the things he goes to when he's stuck, which I thought was interesting. And, um, just this, uh, all these threads tie together. And then literally almost everyone who comes on the show talks about Neil Gaiman or one of us brings up Neil Gaiman, yes, which I yes. think is funny. So he's fabulous. And, but also, um, in the wake of her passing, so I knew the tarot part of her life. And I knew mm-hmm. a little bit about like, I knew she was a comic book writer and all the and things like that. But like, uh, people have written so many things about her. Um, and one of them was a person who just wrote about her uh, experience with the transgender uh, movement within feminism and mm-hmm. terrible time that Rachel had where she was basically shunned um, in the uh, lesbian feminist community because of her being transgender or times that feminists would um, shun her for being a lesbian. And it was just, it was a, it was a beautiful op-ed. And I, it just was like, here's another community completely impacted, you know, by mm-hmm. her life. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, it makes me, it makes sense that she was in the company that she captured. And Neil Gaiman is a pretty high on my list of people. Yeah. Do you happen to have a tarot deck nearby? We could receive a message from Rachel. I do. Let me grab one. Let me grab one. Funnily enough, the closest one at hand is one that uh, Benabel One, our mutual friend, gave me. Oh, um, love Benabel. Hi, Benabel. She had an extra copy of the Rosebud Tarot. Oh yeah. Um, so that's the one I have closest to me. And it was funny because when I looked at this the first time, so the first deck I owned was the Voyager Tarot. Mm. Wow. Yeah, it's nineties, right? Um, <laughs> which was is for people I've never seen the Voyager Tarot. It's a collage <laughs> deck from a lot of pictures that I swear came out of National Geographic. I think they actually got Possibly. sued for copyright infringement. Possibly, this is pre AI. Um, 
Yeah. And it's no longer in print. Like you can find copies online for a couple hundred dollars. But the the deck that I have now, because I had my own deck and then my dad also had a deck. So the deck I use now is the deck that belonged to my dad. Um, But this one was the one at hand. So what would you like me to do with this? Well, I guess uh, it seems like a good time to receive a message from Rachel. Okay. Uh, Dealer's choice. But we could ask her about, does she have any message about the book or does she have a message about death? Uh, Or both? So just one, you know, just pull just one. one card. Let's see how good we are. Okay. All right. This feels like high pressure for some reason. Oh, interesting. So I'm not sure what this is supposed to represent. I may have to get out the little white book. Um, the, the generosity of water is the generosity card. of water. Okay. Yeah. And that sounds like they changed the court cards a little bit. Yeah, so let me see. I think it is the court card. If anyone's listening, uh, guide, tarot guidebooks are hard to write, and you should never feel bad about re- reaching out to the guidebook to get your your beginning or to to start off. Yeah, so the court cards in this deck, um, I haven't really looked at it very much yet, are curiosity, velocity, generosity, and sovereignty. So kind of the queen, I think. Queen of cups. God. Yeah. Okay, so in 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 another deck. Uh, the Queen of Cups and the Rosebud Tech, the generosity of water. I mean, let's run with it. Um, like, see, I'm trying to, like, I'm, I'm beginning by getting into like Rider Wade Smith tarot has Like, well, the mm-hmm. Queen of Cups is the one who, like, let's not, let's not go there. The generosity of water. Uh, I mean, the great well, generosity of water is that it supports all life on this earth, mm-hmm. and from it, it was what we were sort of encapsulated in. Uh, the first single-celled creatures that all of us share ancestry with every bloodline on the planet. I think I just watched a documentary and I'm about this and I'm uh, feeling this, but like, like the water, um, so the question is about death. It is like, it is a return to source. It is a return to like a vast sea of, mm-hmm. of, of, of the origins of life. Mm-hmm. I'll pull the pin there and let you. No, when you said that, I mean, I thought of like primordial, like mm-hmm. coming from and returning to you. This, I guess, that expansiveness, and then also I so associate cups with emotion, and yeah. um, and love, and you know that which I thought, if the word that came to mind was expansive. Yes, I think. Yeah, and then the idea of um, I love you said with the emotion because. I think when someone's very sad about a death, there is like a desire to sort of shift their perspective. So some mm-hmm. people get it. It's like, well, they're in a better place. They're not suffering. All things die. You know, uh, any of that, you know, rigmarole. And I think that the generosity of water suggests that it's very okay to mourn as deeply as you need to, because the queen of cups, the, gener- the, 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 the goddess of water is big enough to mm-hmm. enfold us in that moment and to yeah. be there for our emotions. I think like the King of Cups gets into when we have to like organize our thoughts a little bit and like, you know, maybe go see a therapist, you know, uh, where the <laughs> Queen of Cups is just vast, deep well of listening. Mm-hmm. The word just, I didn't mean it. Yeah. Well, and I think um, I was listening to a podcast and I, I have source amnesia and I can't remember because I always listen to them right before I go to sleep. Mm-hmm. It was talking about grief and dealing with grief and um, to the kind of year of grief 
for me in a lot of ways. And mm-hmm. that um, when she went, finally went to a therapist about grieving her father and the person talking in the podcast, her therapist told her that she would miss the intensity of her grief later mm-hmm. because that intensity of grief was a proximity to the person you had lost. Wow. And I was like, whoa. whoa. I had never thought about it in those ways before. And that made me think of how like, you know, later in grief, it'll catch you off guard. And I've always said it's like getting hit by a rogue wave when it catches mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. because you don't expect something to trigger it or, and it's just overwhelming in the moment, even if it's a really old grief, mm-hmm. it can mm-hmm. just overwhelm you in that moment. Yes. And so all of that kind of tied in and then thinking about like the real grief in this mm-hmm. book and like grieving Rachel's death and all mm-hmm. of those things all together, just kind of tied up. So. Absolutely. So uh, if any of us have any need to connect with Rachel Pollack, going to a very large body of water and finding a moment, making an offering might be something that this card is also helping us. Mm-hmm. Know about that. But the, the proximity of grief and the int- missing, I want to hear that. So you will miss the intensity of this early grief because of its proximity to that person is that's astounding. Yeah. Well, on that wonderful note, <laughs> thank, yeah, you, really. thank, you, thank you wherever you are. Thank you, creator of the Rosebud Tarot for um, uh, titling this card, the generosity of water. Yeah. I like that. Clearly um, I need to spend more time with this deck, um, but it's also a collage deck is why I think I was drawn to it. Um, mm-hmm. And and, ben and I talked about that. It's like a Victorian version of the Voyager tarot kind of way, because it's a lot of rosebuds and the image on this card for people who cannot see it because podcasts are an uh, audio medium is um, kind of like the uh, Wata Wakiki. I can't think of the the Florida mermaids at the bottom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like a woman in a mermaid costume kind of at the bottom of a tank with fake reefs and water above her with roses. So. Lovely, lovely card. It is a lovely deck. Atargatis, wasn't wasn't she a mermaid goddess and associated with sort of terrifying things as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, mermaids in general, I I always feel like, you know, we've kind of disnified them, obviously, but mermaids are scary. (laughs) Yeah, you don't want to you don't want to see one if you're not tied to a mast. No, sirens were sirens were not sailors friends let's put it that way yeah yeah wow very cool very cool so that's a very Rachel Pollocky I think thing to do <laughs> with with the like ask so what is death um and it makes it a little not scary I've, I've actually because someone who, I'm someone who's very afraid of maybe like a lack of a conscious afterlife mm-hmm. uh, I did do a reading I kind of like it was like Rachel Pollock would ask like we'll ask ask death what it is and I did a three card reading about um the transit you know the moment of death the transition and then the the outcome and i just very big and uh it was very helpful and of course again it's not meant to be literal or i'm not meant to she she cautions people and uh, walk the force of souls to not get in if you're a terror reader not to get into this idea that you are superior to other people because you know things they don't mm-hmm. just know the things that you know and um yeah it was a very powerful reading um and also a very confronting reading, but I think often these sort of practices are. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I think that, I mean, for me, I go back and forth between wanting to be like a true believer and 
being slightly skeptical or law mm-hmm. skeptical. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, I, I kind of wafer or waver between um, when you read with an Oracle deck or a tarot deck, what are mm-hmm. you, what are you tapping into? Are you tapping into your own conscious yeah. subconscious? Or are you tapping into some larger conscious? And I think at this point in my life, I'm happy with not really knowing the answer to that question and just kind of rolling yeah. with it. And I like that idea that you're, you don't really know things that other people don't know. You're tapping yeah. into stuff that we all have access to, yeah. whether or not we seek it. Yeah, is the question. So she, she addresses this in Walk Through the Four Souls, and I'll, I'll let people read it. But she kind of, she's not, she doesn't have a problem with skepticism about mm-hmm. tarot. It, it as long as it's sort of interesting, um, and leads us to things. I thought about sometimes the, uh, the mathematics of shuffling a deck of cards mm-hmm. is such that every time, mathematically, every time someone shuffles a deck, in theory, it's a completely unique ordering of the cards in the history of people shuffling because of like mm. how big 78 died by the time 77 times 76 down to, to one. But, um, <laughs> um, so the most insane thing I think I could imagine is that I'm going to shuffle three cards and shuffle the deck. And like the top three cards in order are the answers to my question, but, um, it just works. And, uh, and not, just in the like, I, I, I absolutely think a very reasonable and useful way to look at cards is it's just we're acting the unusual images trigger something and help us go there. And I think that's a perfect way to read tarot cards. But when I have done, you know, predictive tarot, uh, it has worked. Sometimes the same card shows up again and again, which is like mathematically very you know, tricky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very tricky. Possible, but more possible than you'd think, but still very tricky. And um, yeah, where was I going with it? any of this but like the idea of the of of it just okay um i struggled with this i was like well i, I can't I'm, I, it's not like i can tell my deck i can throw it on the ground and it's going to form an elephant you know uh picture so if i don't believe that what i'm like well but you don't believe that could do that but you do believe because you've been able to you reread the deck and have the right cards come up so maybe just like have a little faith but i think but you mentioned right before we did the reading, it felt like a high pressure moment. I think that's valuable for a reader to have, like you are connecting yourself to something other, if it's deep within inside of you or, or profoundly outside of us. Like there is a bit of awe is useful. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is. And I mean, I think for me, I'm, and maybe this is just Rachel pulling this out. I don't know. But for me, like the thing that I will s- admit to being a seeker of is that feeling of awe like that's <laughs> to me like when i know i'm in the presence of something bigger than me <laughs> and i've felt it in places that were unexpected i felt it in places where people are like oh well that's where you should feel that and then you know there's just moments where you're like why why now in the middle of the street in the middle of a city you've never been to and you see a sign kind of like rachel looking down at that woman's name tag and going oh is her name shakina <laughs> you're here of course you're here yeah (laughs) how am i doing like that kind Um, of stuff and to me those uncanny things or coincidence or whatever you know maybe it's just the chaos of the universe and maybe that's how the universe talks to us i don't know i think this is a great time of the year in bulk it's a wonderful time for awe. Um, I like in bulk. I'm, I'm really excited. I got to um, be the in bulk uh, session for this because I think it's um going to sound like a hipster thing. <laughs> it's like it's an underrated Sabbath, but <laughs> I'm excited about, you know, 
Halloween, it's Stalin, and um, Belte. No, sure, sure, sure. But Dimbulk, you know, it's like the redheaded stepchild of the uh, of the of the wheel of the year. But it's um, it is a beautiful time between like uh, the winter solstice. Maybe we have like a kernel of an idea of what we want to plant for the new year, who we want to become as we get to stroll around when you know the wheel of the year one more time. But Imbolc is a time for expansive thinking and inspiration, but not really of doing anything. It's too damn cold mm-hmm. out. Yeah. It's not a time for us to really be like setting even a strategy in place, but just to be like seeking um, divine inspiration and um, and and when uh, uh, writing a project and feeling really bad about procrastination, and we'll just come in for landing to say like um, I went um, I learned about what useful procrastination looks like, which is useful procrastination is not avoiding it, but it's opening your mind up to possibility and mm-hmm. thinking expansively about the project and all that could be in. Uh, just long enough to really be able to work on it and not and not be useless for procrastination, which isn't helpful. And so uh, this time of the year for me is that moment to open up to divine possibility. I love that. And what a perfect way to tie our own bow at the end of this. Yes, yes absolutely. Perfect. Thank you so much for having me on and reading this book with me. It's, it was a really beautiful treasure. Yeah, no, this was, it was perfect. And um, yeah, thanks for being game. Witchlit is a production of Thousand Volt Press and is edited by Julian Rashke. Our intro music is Cosmic Glow by Andrew Kay and our outro music is Voices by Alexander Shinekar. Transcripts and all our previous episodes are available at witchlitpod.com and you can follow us on Instagram and threads at witchlitpod. Please help other witches find us by leaving a rating or a view wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening to and reading Witchlet.